You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 481, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Some listeners might remember him as Robbie on Rails from the early Rails era. Robbie Russell is the CEO of Planet Argon, transforming existing Ruby on Rails applications into more efficient code bases, and is the creator of the popular dev tool, Oh My Z Shell. In addition to these, Robbie hosts the Maintainable Software Podcast, where he speaks with seasoned practitioners and shares valuable insights into navigating legacy code and technical debt. His passion isn't limited to tech, though. He's also the guitarist for the Mighty Missoula, an instrumental art rock band from Portland, Oregon. From coding to music, Robbie truly encompasses a diverse spectrum of interests. Welcome back to the show, Robbie. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. And thank you, ChatGPT, for helping me write that. It was a really good description. I was a big fan. Now, you were on the 2022 RailsConf podcast panel, and we last spoke technically on episode 331 on August right. 19th, 2020, which was a wild time. So since then, Robbie, have you had any big life changes since that's, then? That's a good question. So professionally speaking, I don't feel like there's been any major life changes. Planet Oregon continues to kind of forge ahead. And with the ebbs and flows of running a business across multiple decades, and on a personal level, I was able to get married last year after having to punt our wedding date a couple of years due to the pandemic. So that was good. Outside of that, just trying to get outside every day. And one of the benefits of the pandemic is that I kind of started getting out every day, like literally every day, breaking a sweat, either running or biking or hiking. And that's been going for a little over three years straight now. So that's something that I've changed about myself in the last three years, I suppose. As someone who really likes being active and a quick update listeners, my broken ankle, we're now 15 weeks in. I have been cleared for roller skating and CrossFit. So I feel like I've gotten my life back. I'm curious, Robbie, how did you keep that habit? Do you do it different times of the day? Do you have people that help you be accountable for that? How does that work for you? So I do it every morning. I do it early in the morning, typically before the day can start to catch up on me. I have the benefits of not having kids. I said like intentionally not having kids. And so I have that kind of going for me where I don't have any obligations in the morning. So I take care of that stuff in the morning. Usually I'm out the door before my spouse is even awake yet most of the time. Accountability partner, there's like days of the week we'll do things like running or things like that together as well. She deals with injuries and stuff as well from time to time, but so she can't always do it. But I try to just keep it as a solo activity because it's time for me to get out and just kind of process some things. And half the time it's just become autopilot. I feel like if anything, like it's weird for me to think about when I'm traveling or there's going to be a disruption in my schedule. And I'm like, oh, I have an early morning flight. Or if I'm going to record like a 7 a.m. podcast recording, then all of a sudden the night before it gets a little bit stressful in terms of planning for how am I going to wake up tomorrow feeling like I could sync that in before or after say the podcast recording, or I have to head to the airport for a flight or something, or as soon as I land somewhere, can I sink in a couple mile run or so? So my wife kind of hates that part. So if anything, she's a, she thinks I'm a little overkill on it because it kind of messes with her schedule sometimes, but it's just become such a regular thing that I'm like, no, I got to keep doing it. But I'm assuming I'm going to have to stop doing it at some point, but I'm just not there yet. So we'll see. And I'm glad to hear that you've got the all clear to, to start roller skating and stuff. I know that's been tough for you. It has. Thrilled to have it back. Are you one of those delightful morning people like myself? I've always been. And I think this actually goes back to when I was a kid. My parents both worked and they had a, at least a hour plus commute. And so they would drop us off pretty early. At, like my sister, I have a younger sister. They would drop us off at a babysitter when it was like in elementary school. Like it, I don't know, it was dark out. That's all, I don't remember exactly what time it was, but it was dark out when we get dropped off. So we had to wake up anyways. My first job was a paper route and I had to get up. It was probably 4.35 o'clock in the morning and I was 
rolling up newspapers and watching ESPN's Sports Center as I put rubber bands on newspapers and then go deliver them before then I come back home and get ready to go to school when I was like 12, 13. So that kind of always kind of continued. And then when I dropped out of high school, I painted houses and, and I think we started work at 7 or 7.30 a.m. So it's just like always been, since I was a kid, kind of what I did. This is when I woke up. So I don't think I know any different. I've never understood the people that are like, oh, I just can't wake up before. It's still dark out. And I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's a nice, quiet time of the day. Birds are- Oh, it definitely energizes me. I feel yeah. like I'm getting ahead of everybody. Meanwhile, on the flip side, I'm absolutely useless at night. So. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Now at a certain point in my age where I play music, but also I go to see friends' bands or go to see shows. And I'm like, why didn't they have to start them so late? Like the first band going at 8.30, 9 o'clock. And you're like, okay, so the headliner's going to go on at 10.30. And then my wife's always like, are you going to make me stay for the encore? And I'm like, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> it's harder to stay up late than it used it to It really be. is. Well, you had reached out to me about such an interesting topic, but I pitched it to a couple people and they went, ooh, that's a really good topic. And so what you reached out to talk about was the idea of sunsetting a Rails application, which truly is really interesting and something that we don't talk a lot about in our community. Why was it top of mind for you, Robbie? Precisely that. It's just, I feel like it's like a weirdly taboo topic, not unlike talking about our own death, that we don't really talk about when a software project's going to like no longer be running anymore. Or I feel like maybe it just gets kind of punted a little bit, but for me, it's top of mind because my own organization at Planet Oregon, we've done this a number of times over the years, and it's never been necessarily what we went into business thinking, hey, we're going to help companies shut down their software application. Like It's kind of like a weird, it doesn't sound like there's like a long-term benefit to really working on those types of projects in a lot of ways. And so it's an interesting thing, but here's the deal. Ruby on Rails is like a really awesome framework for like small teams to build big things kind of quickly. And Fast forward that project 15 years. Typically, a lot of projects go through a life cycle of different developers, different agencies, whether they be internal developers or freelancers, whatever the story might be there. Rarely is it the same people that started the application that kind of be the people that pull the plug one day, unless it's, they're kind of like maybe a technical co-founder or something. For a lot of projects, a ton gets passed to someone else and this happens for a while. And then eventually organizations like or maybe this isn't working anymore, or they have, if you take a step back and they're kind of looking at the landscape, like what exists now that didn't exist 15 years ago? And you could have the conversation of like, should we rewrite it? And I'm a big advocate for not rewriting under very, very rare situations. And just have a whole podcast where we talk about that. So we, I don't want to bore everybody about that right now. But in terms of thinking about software, the longevity of software and why we built the software in the first place. And you might've been a developer that joined a project and you got hired because you knew the technology stack and like, and they already made that investment in the software. And then, but yeah, you fast forward that project several years, maybe there's now SaaS products that offer 80, 90% of the functionality that your software project, you know, this custom software development um, project does, you know, you're doing it like, well, is it a lot better to keep going down this custom path? And there's a lot of pros and cons to that. And, or maybe like the project has just been kind of fizzled out over time, or it's like a lot of what you built at one point is no longer needed. And maybe we can just like rethink what the business model is to support this application. So companies will come to us in these situations like, well, we're thinking about rewriting it, or we're thinking about migrating into a different platform, or we're already mid migration and we need someone to keep the lights on for a period of time. But ultimately, we need to help either migrating the application or the data within the application and moving over workflows and reporting tools, what have you. So we've kind of over time ended up just building up a big checklist of things that we start thinking about how we're going to 
help those projects get shut down. So when, because it's not as simple as just hitting the power button or just deleting an application in Heroku, because everybody's really nervous about that final step, because like some business person at a company, if like they've been relying on freelancers, they're maybe not going to just come in and just hit the power button and just like metaphorically speaking, but they're going to be uncomfortable with that. So they'll hire someone to come in and help do that. And it's not necessarily what a lot of people are kind of set up for in terms of thinking about like, well, how do you safely store the data? How do you safely migrate data? How do you double check that? How do you run through some checks on that stuff to make sure that what you're doing, especially if you didn't build that software application in the first place, that actually ends up being kind of a big project of an in and of itself. Anyway, so that's just to say that like this type of work has kind of inherently found us over the years. And so I just wanted to talk about it a little bit more because it's what we're doing. And I feel like there's probably a lot of software projects out there that people listening might be working on that actually could potentially get, you know, migrated away from or shut off and that's not the end of the world. And they can go on and, you know, go work on some more interesting projects. I also have a theory that there's a lot of people begrudgingly providing some support to some freelancing client they had 10 years ago that they feel guilty about, like saying, I can't really help work on this project anymore. But if you were going to shut it down, finally, I could be happy to help you do that for Maybe there's some teams out there that could help them do that here. You can you know, provide an introduction to or something. Thanks to Honey Badger, I have all kinds of sources to back what I'm about to say next. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime certainly should not be one of them. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute that you're down. A monthly subscription with Honey Badger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which of course helps you stay in business. Best of all, Honey Badger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at honeybadger.io. That is honeybadger.io. Thanks to Honey Badger for supporting the show. How many applications do you think got spun down due to Heroku eliminating the free tier? Probably so many, right? I think it forced a lot of people to make an important decision, which in some ways it's almost like moving where you're kind of forced to like figure out whether or not you want something or not. I mean, it was not great for the community when that happened, but in some ways I imagine there were a lot of projects that ended up sadly getting spun down and some that probably needed to because they were so riddled with security issues. That's true. That's uh, I hadn't really thought about that in a little bit, but I guess the question is like, was it a hobby project for you as a developer or was it a hobby project for the company? And Mm -hmm. so if you're a company and you're leaning on free tiers, you know, the Heroku thing, they're basically saying certain versions of Ruby no longer getting updated. And that was a tricky thing. We actually got called in to help move a number of, so I can at least tell you that there's like almost eight or nine different projects that we helped migrate to like AWS so that they could at least keep the lights on for a couple more years with without having to do any more upgrades because that's what they've decided they're going to do. But, and there's some things you can do to like, you can put like a web application firewall in front of it and other things and try to like limit who can access it, especially if it's like an internal organization's application. The likelihood that anyone internally is going to hack your application, there's not really probably like a, a lot of fear there. But I do think that like, it's an interesting thing when Heroku made that decision and like it did have some cascading effects. And so I think you're, you're right there. Some of those projects were, you know, if we're being honest though, they were being under invested and mm-hmm. under maintained. And so it's more of a reflection of how it got to be that way. And so 
I feel like there's been a lot of awkward conversations that either companies haven't been having with themselves or developers haven't been having those with the budgets or who are in control of the budgets and haven't been persuasive enough about thinking about like, how do we avoid this happening? So at least we now have a story about, hey, this is actually what will happen. Like some hosting providers will no longer be able to support this and we're going to have to spend money on moving it or decommissioning it or just pull the plug and say, well, I guess that's gone now. Well, let's get into some of the best practices, because in a lot of ways, I think you'll agree with me, Robbie, it's almost like doing reverse marketing <laughs> where you're convincing everyone to leave the platform safely. And you're trying to convince them as well that it was a good decision that you're spinning it down. You try to offer alternatives. So first off, what's a reasonable timeline and how should you be communicating that information out? So if an organization comes to us, it's usually with a couple different scenarios where they've decided they're making the migration, like they're working on a migration to some other platform, or they're doing a rewrite and maybe a different technology. And those ones maybe happen a little less often. When it's coming to the migration, typically the timeline is a little bit dictated by what that migration timeline looks like. So they might be like, hey, we're going to be doing this and we need to keep the thing up and running for maybe a few more months after the migration finishes. It's very rarely that you can just migrate and then just pull the plug the next day because you're going to want to probably be able to go access the old application and poke around and do some auditing of some things, make sure that you hadn't overlooked anything. As far as the prepping for the migration or the like decommissioning, I would say, you know, you probably plan at least two or three months probably would be a good minimum number. It's interesting, like a little over a year ago, we had a company contact us and they had decided probably six to eight months before they called us that they were going to be migrating their, they had this custom Ruby on Rails application that they'd been working on. They were a former client, like maybe five plus years before we'd helped them with that upgrade. And they'd come back to us saying, hey, we can't afford to maintain the application the way it's been, you know, the size of the team we have. And now there's some SaaS platforms out there we can work with. So we basically hired another agency that's going to be building something on top of like Shopify that did some complex subscription stuff. And they were a couple months into the project and they had already let go of a number of the software engineers or people had left after they made that decision. Some software developers had some time to start looking for new jobs. And so they called us because their main like tech lead on the project had gotten a job offer. And they're basically left with this dilemma of, well, what do I do? My iteration's done finished, but I have a job offer and I get to go continue working with the technology stack that I love and adore. And I don't want to stick around that much longer. And the agency that we had hired is taking way longer than they thought it was going to take. Can you keep the lights on for a few months? And so that was kind of like how we ended up taking over the project for a period of time in that sort of stopgap measure. Side note, it's a year later, migration's not finished. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that happens too. And so things like that happen. So anyways, I can tell you about all this kind of fun horror stories like that. But not to say you shouldn't ever migrate because there's there's definitely a lot of success stories as well. To go back to your original question there, yeah, I think a couple months is a reasonable minimum amount of time, unless it's like a small, really small internal application. But if you're thinking about needing to migrate your customer data between systems, integrating with new platforms, doing data exports, there's a, ends up being quite a bit of development work there as well. One of the things that I've seen people come in and be like, hey, we just need to migrate the data. And so they inherently think we're just going to build a bunch of SQL queries and just generate some CSV exports or something or do some data migrations through that mechanism. And we have found that sometimes it's best to actually take advantage of the Ruby on Rails stack and actually let's write code within the Rails app and have it be part of its own end of life experience and be the thing that actually moves data across and have certain data start syncing things. That way, if things are still getting plugged into your Rails application, you can have that data start like pushing over to another system in parallel for a period of time and kind of have a little bit of that 
checks and balances between the two different infrastructures there. But so that's a way that we can actually use Rails there. We're not just writing a bunch of one-off code that never gets used again. We can work on things, test things out, generate our exports or our data migration stuff, and then know that we're prepping for like a final cutover date where we can then run all the processes one last time, hopefully. And, and then we can start safely thinking about what do we do with all the data in the system? How do we get good snapshots of everything so that if we ever need to spin everything back up again? Because you're kind of in this weird area of like, you need to kind of have things running, but you also don't want to keep spending all of the money on your staging and hosting infrastructure costs in parallel. And so like that stuff could cost companies thousands of dollars a month just for that stuff. And what's the minimum way you can quickly spin up your environment again to go look at something just in case and then eventually be like, okay, we're going to just get to a point where we can archive the data, make the get repositories read-only and make sure that we're reducing access and hopefully their AWS costs or whatever hosting platform that they're working with. So I relate to this advice so much because at my current job, we have two products. They decided at the beginning of the year they were going to deprecate one of them. And so it's an interesting situation where the second product that we are fully invested into, some of the customers from the first product can migrate over to the second product. And you're right, that, that is an opportunity to write code, to be able to make that transition as easy as possible. You want to be able to hold on to those customers if possible. But the first product was a lot more complicated. And there are situations where those customers are no longer a good fit for us. And so now you're in an interesting situation where you've spent all this time looking at your competitors and like comparing yourself and competing against them, correct? And now you're making like partnership agreements where you're like trying to hand those customers off gently. And in some ways, like we said before, it is like reverse marketing. And so... I think that's doing the honest thing for your customers, but I've seen a lot of applications that spin down that never take the time to reach out to their competitors to see if they would be a good fit for their customers departing. You know, it's it's interesting, even just to have that conversation and be like, hey, do you want our customers? And whatever that partnership could look like, but we want to make sure they end up in a good home. So think about this back in, it was like 2008, 2009, in the early era of the Ruby on Rails community, Part of our business was providing web hosting for Rails applications. We had like shared hosting and stuff. And the cloud was kind of this new thing. And we were looking at the the landscape. I'm like, we're not going to invest in becoming like the greatest platform for cloud hosting. And we had all of our physical servers located in a server co-location in downtown Portland. And I was getting really tired of like spending my Thanksgiving holidays, having to go down to the colo to deal with like an outage or something from a hard drive failing. And I was like, this isn't the future of like the company I wanted and so we had like a have honest conversation with ourselves and we ended up finding a company called Blue Box up in Seattle that we had known and they were a competitor. We basically just handed them tons of customers for a small percentage thing of like the ongoing relationship. But it was just like, we want these people to end up somewhere really, you know, they came to us, they trusted us and we want them to keep their thing up and running. We can't sustain this part of the business anymore. We happily shared our source code for that stuff. Like here, can we just hand this to you? You can take the bulk of the income off of this going forward. But we're not going to continue doing this, but we don't want them just kind of laying on their feet. At least giving all of customers an option for a period of time. So I think it's it is smart to think about that. I'm also curious, like how often like a lot of listeners are in that position to even be part of that conversation because it's kind of a is that their part of their role or putting themselves out of a job maybe or part of their responsibility in some ways. If your scenario, you have two Rails apps, but what if it's a company that you have one Rails app that's not serving a lot of benefit? How do you kind of navigate that conversation with yourself and the company? of like, I don't know that we should keep investing in this, yet my career and my livelihood, my income comes from this particular software project at this point in time. So that's a tricky thing for people to kind of navigate as well. 
That's a really good point. That would be a tricky thing to say. And it's a brave situation if you feel comfortable to be able to say it. But it it is amazing when you see products get deprecated and you talk to the team, they look back on it and they'll be like, well, it was obvious that this needed to be deprecated. But I think you would agree, Robbie, that in the moment, you have a personal attachment to the application and you don't want to see it die because all the sunk costs that have gone into it. Yes. And it is a really challenging thing to say, we're not going to keep doing this anymore. And it takes some courage to do that. But it can also be very much an opportunity to get to explore and work on something new, find something new. And I think that's like speaking to, I share that story about that one client who people left their company and like the final tech lead got a job opportunity that they couldn't pass up. I think just knowing that there's other people out there that can help keep it going doesn't mean that obviously if you have a job and you worry that you're not going to be able to get rehired somewhere else, I think maybe that's a bigger career and probably coaching session to probably dig into. But if you do have a lot of skills and you're working on something that you deep down know isn't probably worth investing a lot more time and energy, then like, what are you doing? Is that good for you? Are you going to be proud of that era of your career if it should be dismantled at some point? And it's okay to to just be honest about that and go find something else. I think there's a lot of projects out there that people are... You know, maybe ask to you, Brittany, as far as are there projects or periods of time where you've been working on a software project where you're like things you're probably proud about, but there's also things you're kind of like embarrassed you didn't really get to. And so if it kind of got passed over to someone else, you'd be like, oh, I don't really want to burden someone else with this little bit of this mess that we've collectively built up here. Absolutely. I've been on small teams before where I was one of the key engineers on the project and I was getting ready to leave. And that's that moment where you look back on the things that you're kind of like handing over and you realize that some of the things that you're leaving behind might have been selfish because it was a skill that you wanted to learn. Good example is I had set up like an AWS Lambda function in order to do something that could have easily been built into the main application, but I was interested in increasing my skills on AWS. So when I was leaving, like I made the recommendation hey, you should probably deprecate this and bring it back in-house and like try to consolidate everything together because I want to make it easy for you to be able to hire and replace me. So definitely. And those decisions are always like an interesting thing to have, even like that, like going to that conversation around like, where's that allowance for developers to experiment with ideas and things that they think could be really good for a particular project that they're faced with at the moment, like some business requirement and the longevity of the software project and your own professional development. And these are a lot of things that we as software engineers, especially when we're more of like a lead role as well, we have to kind of juggle these competing interests. And you have to, like, I can't tell my team, like, don't ever experiment with these things because they need to be able to do that and learn from that. So I think it's great that you have that kind of reflection on that, but you wouldn't have known that it might need to be moved back in-house if you hadn't done that. You might still be wondering, like, maybe that would have been a better way long-term, maybe not. There's probably pros and cons to kind of weigh up there, but I think that's just part of like the healthy professional development arc that we all need to go through as well in parallel to doing what's best for the organization that's financing the software projects that we're getting an opportunity to work on. This episode is also brought to you by Scout APM. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help Ruby developers find and fix performance issues. Scout's intuitive UI and tracing logic ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code and allows you to quickly pinpoint and resolve issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. 
Scout's unlimited seats and applications allow teams to collaborate without additional costs and makes it easy for any member of your team to become a performance pro. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial, no credit card needed. As a special offer for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. I could talk about this for <laughs> hours, but I do want to cover another topic that you had brought to me as well. And that's the idea around inviting guests into your application, especially if you're on a small team. Can you tell me more about that idea? Maybe I kind of, this is a little self-serving because I work in the consultant space and my team are often guests in other people's code bases. I think about that scenario where you you were leaving or announced that you're going to be leaving that one small team and you probably needed to go through and like, how do I get everything in order as much as possible so they can bring in someone and maybe replace you or bring other people into the project? So you're kind of putting in that organization in a scenario where they kind of have to just be reactive and be like, okay, what are we going to do? And you maybe give your employer a couple of weeks, four weeks. There's always that conversation. Oh, I'll still be around to answer some questions. I don't think I've ever not heard that. This is like a really bad situation. Whether or not those organizations or the people that come in take advantage of that is like a whole nother topic. But I do think when you're in that window of not having much opportunity, so we get phone calls, panicked employers or product managers being like, we just lost someone or they just announced they're leaving. What do we do? We need to know that we can keep this up and running until we hire someone. So we'll get pulled into these situations. You're kind of scrambling and there's no time to put a plan together. You're just kind of like, okay, let's get us in there, get us access for everything. And not everybody's going to be super available. So you end up consultants, they might be booked out for a few months. And so they're not available right away. So you end up getting whoever's available, which may or may not be the right fit for you. So I think going back to like, I would encourage small teams in particular to bring in guests because it'll, especially, and I'm also an advocate for doing it kind of in a very clearly time box period of time. So like, let's say six weeks, four or six weeks. So there's a very clear in and out period of time where there's no, like, we can do this other thing later down the road. It's more like having someone go through the process of being exposed to your onboarding documentation, project setup, getting access to all the infrastructure being able to allow them to do things like go through a deployment process in your infrastructure. Because if you're a small team, it's probably, depending on how your like the deployment structure is set up, you've either likely have a two-person development team. My theory is you have either a very underwhelming deployment process. There's a lot of like gotchas and things you need to know about, or you've drastically over-engineered it because that was something you were able to do at some point. So like that typically tends to be the thing that we see when we come into these scenarios where we're playing guests for a little bit of for a short period of time. It's like either one of these extremes where we're like, wow, so we can use as an opportunity to come in and highlight some things that look really good. I think a good consultant will not just shine lights on the problems, they'll highlight all the things that are actually good, which will be a good confidence booster for you and anyone working on the project as well. So that can be seen as a good thing. It doesn't need to be seen as a threat. Like, oh, other people know how this stuff works. If you are a software developer, if you're worried about taking like vacations for an extended period of time, because you only got one or two other people that can work on this. You're like, why well, don't I leave them? And knowing that someone else can quickly jump in and participate, something were to go wrong, that could be really helpful to an organization to know that that, like, just to have some confidence there. Because again, we usually get pulled into these conversations way after, like, there's been some problems between maybe one of the engineers is showing signals that they're probably leaving. And so we get called by an owner of a company and they're like, yeah, I'm nervous. And so we have to, like, awkwardly get introduced to, the tech lead on a project and the owner's like, how do we do this in a way that doesn't, we really want them to 
continue working on it. Like, I feel like if we even introduce you, we're going to scare them and they're going to like run off like they're just these scaredy cat or something. And I'm like, no, no, it's okay. We just need to like, let's just be mindful. And again, this is about the organization's stability. It's in their best interest to know that there's a contingency plan. It's like their business responsibility to do this. So if you're threatened by that, that's just something you're, you need to come to terms with, but like, just see it as like a good growth opportunity that you can say, okay, I'm going to use this as a learning opportunity. If you're threatened by this, maybe it's going to be take some time to have some self-reflection on like, knowing you can come clean about it. Here's the things we haven't gotten to, but I think a good consulting will come in and be very empathetic. So we work on software projects all the time that like under very, very different conditions. And like, we know that there's budget constraints. There's time constraints that you've been exposed to over the years. Maybe if you were working by yourself for a long time and you're having to work on new features while also putting out fires in parallel, and eventually they let you hire like a junior or mid-level person to come in and help you with the project. And then you're now you're also mentoring those people and building new features and putting out fires. You don't have have a lot of time to work on a lot of documentation that no one else is going to look at. There's a lot of technical debt or you understand how things work. So you haven't really needed to communicate it and document it or improve the test coverage for things because again, you there's just been a limited amount of time there. So good consultants should know that. If you have if you hire an external guest and they just give you the, the laundry list, like you need tests, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, anyone can tell you that. But like, how are you, we going to start iteratively improving upon that's a different thing. How am I going to make time for that is a different challenge. And I think good consultants can come in and like help you start seeing ways to do that or at least have conversations with the people that are controlling the budgets at your organization to start helping you come up with better conversations and to get more support, financially speaking, or budget more time for these things so that they carve out some more space for you so that you can work on these things because maybe you're a really good software developer, but you're not necessarily really good at influencing how budgets are or pushing back on timelines that are difficult. So those are just different skills you've maybe not developed as of yet. So guests might be able to come in and help you navigate some of that. I agree. And some of the best consultants I've ever worked for, they come in and they want to be educated as well and they don't judge. So like if they come in and you simply do not have a test suite, to your point, there's probably a reason for that. And you might be like a situation where it's like really complicated to get the local environment up to be able to run it in a test environment. Well, now you're sitting down with a consultant and like kind of educating them about the ecosystem, the dependencies and like why you're in this situation and good consultants want to learn from that because they want to be able to take those skills and be able to use those with other clients. So no one should ever be coming in and judging. But I agree that there is a stigma out there that, you know, the police have come in and like <laughs> they're here to like wrangle up everybody yeah. and ask them why they're committing all these sins. And that's it really doesn't have to be the case. That is the sign of a very, in my opinion, a very immature external consultant. They just haven't been exposed to it. I think it's really easy to point out the problems and things. And again, you should be able to come in and highlight the good things and give you some paths forward. I think about the testing topic in particular. It's really, really hard. So especially on software projects that have been around for a while. And we don't always come into scenarios where the software project, these scenarios, a small team. It's that example you gave earlier. Were you one of the original developers on that project? I sure wasn't. Most of us aren't. And so... How do we learn to write tests? It's usually like in the context of like, okay, you got a brand new application. This is how you can start writing some unit tests or this is how you start doing some integration tests. When you come into a situation, if those original developers, they didn't know how to or they didn't do that or they started to, but they kind of quickly gave up once the application started getting kind of complicated because all of a sudden you've got, I don't know, maybe a form that it's going to save data into like two to four different database tables. And they're like, I don't know how to make that work because I 
there's not a good blog post on that particular scenario. I'll come back to this later. And later becomes a couple of years and then they leave and someone else comes in and like it wasn't set up or you had a handful of tests. There's maybe fairly that there's no tests. There's usually like an attempt for testing. And then you can point out like it was abandoned here. And you can see in the Git history that it was attempted again here, or there was some Git branches that someone had tried working on and they never figured it out. And then eventually maybe someone tries like, oh, now we're going to do some Cypress tests because we don't need to deal with all the Rails stuff necessarily, but like it's hard. And so sometimes you need that external team to come in and like help show you like, hey, this is what we've done. And it's not going to work every time, but bringing in some people that have some experience adding tests to existing applications to at least give you some guidance will help save your organization a lot of Googling and crossing your fingers, thinking you're going to figure it out on your own. If you don't already have these skills, it's just really hard to kind of wrap your head around your own context of your application because there's a lot of other decisions being made in that in your application than just going what you can probably extract from a couple thousand word blog posts on, that you found on Google. Absolutely. I think I agree with you that every application has a story. And so getting to know the history and the documentation behind that is really important, giving that chance to the consultant to hear about the handoff that you might have experienced and whatnot. So I agree that is so, so important. We are going to wrap there. Robbie, how can listeners follow you? Yeah, you can follow me at Robbie with a Y, Russell, on most social channels, or you can head over to planetargon.com slash R-O-B-B-Y, and that has a bunch of links to various places you can find me on the internet. Amazing. Well, we definitely had other topics that we could have talked about today, so we're going to have to have you back on, Robbie, whether or not you like it or not. (laughs) But anyway, it's always great to talk to you and talk to you, Sam. Likewise. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.